All right, here we go. Let's pray and we'll get started. O God, from whom come all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works, give to us, your servants, that peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments, and also that we, being defended from the fear of our enemies, may live in peace and quietness through the merits of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, busy weekend around St. John. Um, Women's retreat yesterday, that was good fun. There was a men's retreat the night before, if you didn't know. Uh, Three pastors, where's Bruzek? Oh, (laughs) just talking about the men's retreat on Friday night. Yeah, train up a child in the way he should go. We had three pastors and um, Sam Hoffman and Kit Bruzek, so... And cigars and two bottles of wine and three pounds of steak. Uh, baked potato? I don't think so. And like I said, it's in the Bible. Train up a child the way he should go. And when he grows old, he won't depart far from it. So, there we go. All right, uh, picking up a little bit from last week. This, is, this may seem a little bit like an aside, but hopefully you, uh, you catch where it all flows together. One of the great things about the women's retreat was... Carla gave the first lecture and the third lecture, and I gave the second lecture, and we hadn't really compared notes at all. But from what I hear, uh, it was seamless, hopefully. Um, (laughs) Betty, hopefully. Uh, And hopefully this is seamless as well. You know, last week, uh, Pastor Bruzek ended by, in his outline at least, going from the altar to the world and seeing beauty in ugly things, things the world would deem ugly, um, handicapped, deformed, martyrs, um, and also things that we would deem ugly, specifically those who are evil, or as it said in the sermon, uh, you know, those who hate us. Along with that, though, comes the need to be able to give a winsome witness, or almost an apologetic for the faith. And really where this, uh, where this outline stems from, or the genesis of this outline at least, uh, is from this class I taught at River Forest. And when David Scare was here about six weeks ago, you guys are good. This is like, thank you. When David Scare was here a few weeks ago, um, he talked specifically about how when the seminary was in crisis, he wasn't allowed to teach dogmatic courses anymore, but he had to teach the, uh, the Epistle to James, or the Epistle of James, and then he wrote a book on James. When they said, would you teach apologetics at River Forest, I'll be honest, I had no idea. I, I knew nothing uh, about apologetics. But very quickly then, in the 10 weeks leading up to the course, I had to teach myself apologetics. So part of this is what those those students got in a very condensed version. But it really falls in line with what Bruzek said last week, which was, uh, be prepared to give a witness to those, even those who hate you. Uh, And in that witness is something extraordinarily beautiful. Or, I'll give you what Pope Benedict said when he was here uh, just this week. He said this in one one of his lectures. Nothing is more beautiful than to know Christ and to make him known to others. Okay? Nothing is more beautiful than to know Christ, mystical union, abiding in his presence, and then to make him known to others. And the part of making him known to others is being ready to give an apologetic or an apology or a winsome witness Uh, for the hope that you have in you. So look at your outline, point one. First thing you need to do is understand who you are. There are apologists in the narrow sense, 
a person who offers an argument in defense of something controversial. New American Oxford Dictionary, page 73. You know these folks like Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, um, John Warwick Montgomery, who's a Missouri Synod Lutheran. These are apologists in the very strict sense. That's not what we're talking about today. That's not who I am, so I'm probably not qualified to teach that course, but they had no one and they were desperate, so they settled. And I still get paid. It'll be great. That was a joke. (laughs) Oh, boy, this is a rough crowd, I'll tell you. And right here, you know, when you read the gospel in this spot, I always think it's, it's turned up to the max, but it's actually, can everyone hear okay? Wow, there's a lot of, thank you. All right, so apologist in the narrow sense, someone who gives a defense for something controversial. But apologist in the broad sense, this is you, this is me. We are sacramental, Christological, it's driven by the person of Christ, Catholic, Christian, small c, of the Lutheran tradition, always ready to give a reason for the hope that's in us. What we have going for us as Lutherans, and the reason why this whole discussion of beauty and the way beauty plays itself out in sharing beauty with others The reason it's helpful for us is because we have a very rich theological tradition that lends itself to this sort of talk. It's a tradition rooted in Holy Scripture, motivated and nourished by the Holy Sacraments, finding its inner logic, its central point in the person of Christ, who speaks and acts in and through us, his beloved. The text for today is so great, and this is... This is what it's all about. Jesus says, I and, the, I, and the fa- I and the Father are one. And you know that you and Jesus are one. So what goes for the Father goes for the Son, and what goes for the Son also goes for you. You do what Jesus does. If you don't do what Jesus does, and this is in the way of the law, you can't claim to be a Christian. It's as simple as that. You might be, as the Pope says of us, a separated brethren... <laughs> Uh, but you can't claim to be a Christian in the fullest sense. What Jesus does is what you are given to do as well. Jesus speaks and acts in and through us, his beloved. However, using that definition, then, we need to go, how do we go about defending the faith? First, you need to understand others as well. What are we dealing with? Who are the folks we're going to come in in, in contact with? As you know, and I said this a few weeks back, and I got a very nice email from someone who basically said, um, I know, I know postmodernism is all over the place, but I just don't know if I can accept that. And my response would be, or my response was, the same thing they say in Sports Center. You can't stop it. You can only hope to contain it. <laughs> it's here. It's here. And to deny it is really, to, in a sense, to deny reality. Okay? That's what it is. doesn't mean you have to like it, but that means it is what it is. You can't stop it. You can only hope to contain it. So we live in a postmodern world where things are rapidly changing. If Nelson was here, he could give you 45 minutes on what postmodernism is all about. And at the end, you'd, you might still be confused because that's the way postmodernism works. <laughs> okay? Even when you think you've got it, you don't have it. Truth, in most cases, is determined by being and belonging as opposed to knowing and discerning. Okay? You belonging to something, who you are for a postmodern, is much more important than what you know or what you've been told, you know, no matter how historical the data is. Okay? Being and belonging are most important. 
And it says there, people are not rational. I think, you know, Bruzek gives out aphorisms to all of his vicars. I think this is the first aphorism I got when I was a pastor was, people are not rational. <laughs> and just think about it. How many times you do things that are not rational, how often you're, you're engaged in conversation where really it's driven by emotions and not by being rational. Okay, so people are not rational. We can't count on that. We're not modernists. We are postmodern. But you remember how classical apologetics works, how defending the faith has worked classically. You begin with reason. You prove that God exists or that he is at least more probable than not. And from there, you begin to prove the other Christian truths. For instance, the reliability of Scripture, the person of Christ, etc. I would urge you, if you have any free time to do any reading, pick up this book by James Smith, Who's Afraid of Postmodernism? It is the best book on, one, postmodernism, and two, uh, sharing the faith in a postmodern culture. It's, I mean, there's nothing better. He's a professor at Calvin College. He's brilliant. He comes from a tradition that is not liturgical, and as you'll see, he sees the liturgy as the answer to postmodern questions. So if you're sitting here and you say, it would be fun if we had a praise band, he would say, that is the most modern thing you could ever do. If you want to appeal to someone who's a postmodern, for most of you that might be your kids, the appeal is found in the liturgy. Because it's ancient, it's bigger than you, and there's a deep sense of mystery. That's postmodernism in a nutshell. So listen to James Smith then. To put it in more familiar terms, classical apologetics, the one that runs by reason, operates with a very modern notion of reason, presuppositional, where you hold certain things to be true. You don't argue over whether or not the scriptures are true. That's not what you do on the corner when you meet someone who's not a Christian. You don't say, here are the 12 reasons why I think Holy Scripture is true. You presuppose that that's true. And in that sense, it's very postmodern insofar as it recognizes the role of presuppositions in both what counts as truth and what is recognized as truth. So to break it down for you a little bit, postmodern apologetics, sharing your faith in this culture, begins with revelation, or a Lutheran way of speaking, it begins with incarnation, noam, the word for beauty in the Hebrew, which is an incarnational presence. And it works well only when it is dictated not by neutral reason, but your witness needs to be dictated by a story. It needs to be dictated by a life. And that requires eyes to see and ears to hear, hence the presuppositional part. You first need eyes to, hear, eyes to see it and ears to hear it before you can ever get it. So people must be brought into a living reality They need to be brought into the church, the physical body of Christ, before they can ever be persuaded of specific theological truths. This is part of the reason why, as you'll see, again, you can't stop it, you can only hope to contain it, the way we do catechesis will be totally redeveloped in this next year, probably even starting this summer, where we'll go to a very ancient model of the catechumenate. The purpose of going to the catechumenate is the catechumenate understands postmodern culture. If you remember, if you know anything about the early church, what you'll probably know is the early church, our culture looks strikingly similar to that of the early church. 
Life is hell, and people know that. They don't like that, and they would love to find a way to get in on another life. In the early church, people were being killed all around, and the only refuge you had was to join the church. And on top of not only protecting your life for the most part, they also gave you all the goods that Jesus has to give. The way we do catechesis now is, is totally upside down. We bring people in and we give them a catechism and say, memorize these 20 pages and then you're a Lutheran. That doesn't make you a Lutheran. That doesn't make you a Christian. Because that operates under a very modern notion of reason. If you know all the facts, then you're in. If you don't know all the facts, then you're out. Whereas in the early church, uh, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, that's not the way they worked. You were in, and then they taught you all the facts. Because being and belonging are more important than knowing and discerning. Okay, is everyone tracking that? Everyone understand that? Okay. So the first day I taught out there, I said to the students, there were about 12 of them in the class, all of them are pretty much fourth-year students, and some are going off to the seminary, which always provides for a great example in class, because I can say to the girls who are all going to be Lutheran school teachers or deaconesses, hey, look over here, these goofballs are going to be your pastors in about four years. <laughs> they, don't, they, don't, uh, they don't think that's very funny, but um, if you've seen them, you'd know what I mean. Uh, it's like, brush your teeth, pull up your zipper, come to class, it'll all be great. Um, if I was teaching, <laughs> if I was teaching, uh, if I was teaching a seminary one course, that would be the course. Brush your teeth, comb your hair, zip your zipper. All is well. <laughs> you know how this goes. <laughs> so I asked these students, what are, some, what are some questions you're hearing today? And of course, you know, like, and I said this last week, going to a Lutheran college, there's nothing wrong with that, but you're very much in a bubble. I mean, you're not, I remember for myself, and I thought I was out in the world a little bit, you're very, very disconnected from reality. Um, and so I said, what are some questions people are asking today? One guy raises his hand. Well, they're asking about the reliability of Holy Scripture. No, they're not. <laughs> they're asking about 12 proofs for the resurrection of Jesus. No, they're not. They're asking about all the questions they thought people were asking. They weren't asking. Now, of course, these are very broad strokes, and there may, there may, may very well be folks who are asking these questions, uh, but those people are few in number. So here are the questions I propose to them that people are asking. And see if these fit. I may be wrong. I'm lonely. Can you help? I'm unloved. Will you love me? Where can I find something beautiful? I want more joy in my life, but where can I get it? Justice? Is there any? Who is Jesus? These are a bit more ecclesial. Who is Jesus? Why should I join a church? And what happens on Sunday? And I would say to you, and, I, and I've said this now multiple times, but I would say to you that everything flows from the first two, being lonely and unloved. It's very interesting if you listen to anything about the Pope's visit. And I, you know, we can talk about how he's, he's wrong in many respects. He, he is. Um, but you have to give the guy credit. Um, you know, for meeting with the families of people who had been abused by priests. That's a guy who gets what, he gets confession and he gets absolution. You know, he came over here and he said, I've got no time for anyone else. Avery Cardinal Dulles, who we'll look at in just a minute, 90-year-old cardinal, supposed to speak at Wheaton College this next spring, and I just talked to a professor and he said, 
We asked him to send us his lecture already because we don't think he's going to make it. On his deathbed, and uh, he was actually supposed to be at a seminary in Mundelein, the whole conference at his honor, he was supposed to give the last lecture, and he couldn't go because he's so ill. And of course, Rome, like everyone else, they won't tell you the full story. Well, he's, he's not feeling well, and tomorrow you're here. May his soul rest in peace. He's, he's died. Um, but he's very ill. And the Pope came over and they said, we're sorry, you have no time for personal visits with anyone. And he essentially demanded that they allow him a half hour to go and see Cardinal Avery Dulles, and he said, because I am his pastor. We call him the Antichrist. <laughs> Think about it. However, in his, in his letter that he sent to the United States right before he came, he, he ended by saying, my prayers are specifically with the lonely. And his first encyclical, you remember, was on divine love. What are the two things people are most afraid of? Being lonely and unloved. He gets that. It's like pride being the first sin. This is what leads to every other trouble you could ever have in your life. People are not asking then, look, look on your sheet, people are not asking the questions of modernism. Would you prove this or that using reason or data? I know there are people out there that ask those questions, but a majority are not. Rather, people are asking how they can get in on your life. They're asking questions strikingly similar to that of the early church. And you'll note well here the appeal of self-help or kind of spirituality texts. I mean, uh, Dr. Phil has made a killing because this is the culture. The problem is he has nothing to offer. You actually have something to offer. And that's the point. People are asking these questions that other people are trying to answer, but there is no meat behind the answer. What we need to offer is something that is thoroughly sacramental, it is concrete, it is life-giving, it is embodied. It's something you can touch. Or as Smith says, the best way to be postmodern is to be ancient. And the best way to proclaim Christian faith in the postmodern world is not quietly, with chastised timidity, but unapologetically, with an embodied commitment to justice in the community. What we need to deliver as St. John Lutheran Church and I am thoroughly convinced of this, what we need to deliver actually is a life. That is our winsome witness. Deliver a life, specifically the life of Christ, which has become ours through divine participation with him. Think the great exchange from Luther. He takes all your sin from you, you're completely clean, and he drops his divine life right back into you. He takes your sin, you take his life. The great exchange... Or also, you remember, the mystical union. You and Jesus are one and the same. What goes for him also goes for you. So that's the culture. And knowing then what we're up against, the question is, how do we deliver the answer? But even more importantly, you see, this new apologetic, which is in fact very ancient, is one that is proclaimed by a community's way of life, St. John's way of life. Listen very carefully here. As Peter Lightheart has remarked, the first and chief defense of the gospel, the first letter of commendation, not only for Paul, but also for Jesus, is not an argument, 
but the life of the church conformed to Christ by the Spirit in service and suffering. The church doesn't have an apologetic. The church is an apologetic. The church doesn't have a witness. The church is a witness. Okay? Everyone tracking that? It is all about the church being the church in the church's sense. Living together in community, coming to church, receiving the gifts, living the Christological life, going out the doors, Bruzik said last week, ready to encounter those who the world would deem ugly, or even who you might deem ugly, because they're evil and they hate you. <laughs> One way to fix your problem with people who might hate you is just to love them. That seems to fix the problem. Pray for them. Name them by name. We are living apologetics, walking, breathing, talking apologetics, by virtue of our incorporation into the holy flesh of Christ. Moreover, it is this mystical union. Think Ephesians 5. St. Paul says, Lo, I tell you a mystery. Lo, I tell you something sacramental. Think about this mystical union which energizes us sacramentally, Christologically, tangibly, to deliver a winsome defense of the faith. And this is probably one of the most important points to be made as you go forward, as we go forward. This defense of the faith happens not by argumentation. I know how easy it is and how fun it is to argue sometimes. It'd be different if you came over to my house and we were having a glass of wine talking about the faith. That's different than what you're going to encounter out in the world. You and I are on the same page. We're just having some fun. What you encounter out in the world are people who don't know Jesus or who don't know the Jesus that you know. The Jesus who delivers his gifts at altar, pulpit, and font. They don't know that Jesus the same way you know that Jesus. And it's so easy to slip into argumentation. It's fun. <laughs> you know, Bruzik would say we were shooting fish in a barrel. It's so fun. I mean, you should just come to a circuit meeting sometime. <laughs> that probably just went on the radio. The bishop will be calling next week. But you should go sometime when you have people who don't agree. It's great fun. But that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about are people who don't know Christ or don't know the Christ that you know. This defense happens not by argumentation, but by bringing people into contact with Christ himself. And I would propose that this takes place most specifically in the liturgical life of the congregation, in what happens on Sunday here what has just happened, and what will happen in just a few moments. Smith says, I will argue that the postmodern church could do nothing better than to be ancient. Incense, icons, banners, colors, processions, gospel book. That's what the church has always done. The church could do nothing better than be ancient. That is the most powerful way to reach a postmodern world is by recovering tradition. And that the most effective means of discipleship is found in the liturgy. They just, did a, they just did a poll right before the Pope came over of young Catholics. And it said something. They asked, they asked three groups of people. Pre-Council of Trent, or Second Vatican Council. Pre-Council of Trent, which usually are considered very historic, ancient Catholics. Latin Mass all the vestments, you know, everything you can think of. Post-Vatican II Catholics, people probably of your generation, most of you, who were, were in a sense, very opposed to that kind of stuff. If you ever see a priest playing a guitar, 
I promise you he's post-Vatican II. Okay? You've seen this, a guy in his chausable walking around playing a guitar. Okay, that's post-Vatican II. Pre-Vatican II is nothing is in English. And that has its own problems. But the point is, there was a sense of mystery, the ancient, something very historic. They did a poll of those Catholics, post-Vatican II Catholics, and what they call millennial Catholics, code word postmodern Catholics. And what they found was attendance at Mass and desire for the liturgy was most strong in pre-Vatican II Catholics and millennial Catholics. The people who come to Mass on Sunday, the people who have a desire for an ancient historic liturgy are people who are 70, 80, 90 years old and people who are 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. Okay? It doesn't mean other stuff is bad. What it means is if you're actually in tune with postmodern culture, you've got to know what to deliver and how to deliver it. Okay? So then, our postmodern apologetic is something that is deeply Christological. It begins with Christ. If you don't begin with Christ, you've got it all wrong. And therefore, it is deeply sacramental. It is Christ applied to you and then through you to others. And it is deeply transformational. You remember what happens when people come in contact with Christ. The widow's son at Nain, who is dead as a doornail. Jesus says, young man, I say to you, arise. He touches the son at Nain, or as I say to the eighth graders, he touches the beer. <laughs> they all think that's funny, like Michelob Light, Bud. No, it's the, it's the casket. He touches the beer. Yeah, B-I-E-R, touches the beer. And the young man instantly sits up, and he begins to speak himself. He begins to speak himself. When you speak and it changes, folks, they begin to speak as well. Or what happens to Mary? Word into her ear, Jesus in her flesh, she's changed forever. But because it's deeply transformational, it's deeply rooted in the church's liturgy and pastoral acts. The reason it was so great to have 50 people come to confession during Holy Week was because that's the place where the Lord delivers his gifts and comes in contact with his people and then sends them out to bring him to others. All of that then pushes us out. Go the mission, the way the Latin Mass ends, to make disciples and make them stronger by bearing Christ in our bodies all the way to the ends of the earth. The apologetic then, if you think about what happened last week with Bruzek's discussion, is both living and extraordinarily beautiful. As the Pope says, the most beautiful thing is to know Christ and to make Christ known. Any questions on any of that? Yeah. So, the, the term modern and postmodern, I, I'm not sure I completely understand. Yeah. What I, what I think I'm getting from what you're saying is that, and we refer to it as the me generation, mm-hmm. so the, the moderns were, it was about them. It was how it was affecting them, how they felt. And the postmodern is more, we want to be part of something bigger than us. Yeah. The question is, moderns, he's asking, are moderns primarily defined by kind of a me generation, or being a me generation, where postmoderns are kind of we? I, w- I would agree. Um, it's, it's striking if you get a group of moderns together and ask them their thoughts on something controversial, they'll always begin, I think or I feel. 
And postmoderns may as well, but usually when they're brought into a community, they have enough sense about them and enough desire to say, we think, we feel, which still isn't always best, but you can see a shift from me to we or, or myself to community, which is the big appeal uh, to a traditional liturgy because it's not about you or it's not about, here about the guy doing whatever in the chancel. It's about the church's liturgy where you're, you're together with billions and billions of people even in heaven. I do think that's the appeal, part of the appeal, because what they desire is community and they can find it in a place like this. What else? Yeah. I didn't say that exactly, but, uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, right. Uh, his question, he, he asserted that I said the way not to appeal to a modern is to have a praise band. I don't think I actually said that uh, verbatim, um, but maybe I implied that. Yes, right, yeah, yeah. Am I on record with this? <laughs> no, I think... Um, it has nothing to do, it has very little to do with whether or not you like that kind of music. For a postmodern, that's not it, necessarily. I think for a postmodern, they would say, if a pastor can write it in his office on Saturday morning, I don't want it. If a pastor can do it in his office, if it's not bigger than him, I don't want it. And the appeal of the liturgy is, it's 2,000 years old. In fact, I would, I would push it and say it's longer than that. There's a liturgy in the Old Testament. It's 2,000 years old. People have done this well for years. Um, and it's not something you or I could do well if we just sat down together on Friday. And the other thing is, and this is funny because I presented a paper very similar to this at the circuit meeting, and it was kind of like deers in the head, deer in the headlights. <clears throat> My wife's a language arts teacher. That wasn't good. Uh, like deer in the headlights. But what they all said was, yeah, the Missouri Synod's 30 years behind everyone else. <laughs> We're right now beginning to think Shine Jesus Shine might be a good song. <laughs> you ask the guy who wrote it. That's way true. You ask the guy who wrote it. He probably doesn't think it's a good song anymore. And the people who... And the people who Brought that kind of uh, uh, brought that kind of music or that kind of worship into the church twenty years ago. Frankly, we're very talented at it, but anymore, there's not the appeal. People, a postmodern would say that's cheesy. Yes, what they want is something that is bigger than themselves, that is ancient, that has mystery, that has something that you can't fully figure out. If you repeat the same five words over and over again, you can figure it out. If you have incense and you say, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, Jesus is coming down to the altar and I'm communing with my dead relatives, they'll say, I can't figure that out, but it is great. <laughs> okay? So, did I dodge enough there? I actually... Uh, two things. Uh, very good question. How would you account for the growth of those two things? Then I want to read you a Starbucks card real quick. Uh, how would you account for the growth? First, um, I would actually disagree that they're growing the way we think they're growing. Um, because churches that did that sort of thing, and I'm thinking specifically of Lutheran churches now, attendance has plummeted. We had 
15 or 10 to 15 couples under the age of 25 in about three weeks come in and say, we want to join your church because you have the liturgy. And what they specifically said was, we don't want other stuff. We want this. And here were their words. Here were their words. It's bigger than me. I know you didn't make it up. There's mystery. It's Jesus. So I would, I would actually, I would press hard. I mean, I would want to see all, and again, if you take evangelicalism in, in general and add up all the numbers, yeah, they're going to be bigger than the Missouri Synod. But, but this guy's an evangelical, and he's not saying that. You have a huge rise in what's called the emergent church, which is basically folks getting together and having a great, a great liturgical rite. The problem is there's no meat to it. They're not delivering the goods of Jesus. Tazay has taken off all over churches. So I, I would actually press the point that, that, that people still want contemporary worship. Here's the other thing. There was just a study put out by Willow Creek where they said at the very end, yeah, we had huge numbers, but we didn't make solid disciples. And that's, and that's the point. I mean, you can, you can talk all day about whether or not it's good. Yeah, it's good. They do it very well. I'll give them a lot of credit. You walk in there and it's done well. But what they did didn't make disciples. And the point is, we're trying to make disciples. If it was just about numbers, if it was just about having 100 people come in tomorrow, that wouldn't be a problem. Advertise, we're going to have great praise, but you're going to have a U2 Eucharist. You've heard about these. Advertise, you're going to have that, we'd have 800 people in here. But we wouldn't be making disciples. Look at uh, the way I see it. Starbucks. You can learn a lot more from listening than you can from talking. Find someone with whom you don't agree in the slightest and ask them to explain themselves at length. Then take a seat, shut your mouth, and don't argue back. It's physically impossible to listen with your mouth open. That is brilliant. If you speak first, you lose. It's the same thing with apologetics. If all you do is talk, you won't win. And I mean win them for Jesus, of course. If you listen... That's how you make disciples, by listening first and then delivering an answer centered around the person of Christ who delivers his gifts tangibly, concretely, sacramentally. Okay? Should have, do you have this sheet too? I, it should have been a second. This is actually what I think Bruzek was going to give out this week. Um, yeah, you do have it. Just look at the second quote here from Avery Cardinal Dulles. Love of God and neighbor support each other. Religion becomes rigid and formalistic if it is divorced from communion with our neighbors. Relations with our neighbors, conversely, have no depth unless we can find in them the image of God. If we have learned to encounter others based on a genuine communion with God, we can truly love those whom we do not like or even know. We become capable of looking on them from the perspective of Jesus. That's only because he's inside of you and, as it were, with his eyes. Thinking and willing in union with the Lord, we experience a spiritual communion of minds and hearts with others who are also in communion with him. Love of, God, love of neighbor and love of God are most strikingly realized in the church as the body of Christ, the desire to be ancient. The sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist are social in nature. Besides uniting us vertically, as it were, with Christ, they unite us horizontally with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Holy communion draws us out of ourselves. It is a humbling thing to go to the altar. 
draws us out of ourselves and thus toward union with all other Christians. It is impossible to possess Christ simply for ourselves, for we belong to him only in company with all who ever belong to him. Every authentic celebration of the Eucharist therefore passes over into concrete acts of love. Okay? That is what it's all about. Last week you heard in the sermon you go from altar to world and back to altar again and then you get pressed back out to the world to give a winsome witness which you carry in your body as you come in contact with people and thereby bring them in contact with the person of Christ. Okay? Everyone tracking all that? All right. Let's pray and let's go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.